should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, 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 welcome. It's Tuesday, August 11th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. And because it's Tuesday, we love Tuesdays. Our good friend, John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. Hi, Michelle. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, I think. I don't know. Every time I wake up, sure? I turn on the news and it's just, oh, it's just stupid stuff. Does the stupid stuff rhyme with schlump? <laughs> Ronald schlump? Yeah, you know, I think that, uh, I think I'm getting burnt out by all the, you know, campaign stories and all these uh, people who are running for president. It's just kind of like, I can't believe that some of these candidates are taken seriously. And I can't believe that Donald Trump actually has a chance. He doesn't actually have a chance. If you want me to make you feel better. Okay, tell me. He's appealing to 20 to 25% of Republicans. That's pretty much his ceiling. So figure even of Republicans, 75% are not going over to the dark side. Um, and that that core that he has happens to be bigger than the whole group of other people individually. But as they start dropping out, you know, you'll see them others, the more rational ones, hopefully, um, <laughs> kind of agglomerate some of that support, and eventually Trump will. Well, I guess uh, the you know the people who are reporting these types of polls and saying that he's you know leading contender on the Republican side are actually, I guess, those types of statements are misleading. He's the leading candidate right now, yes, in the polls. He, he shows us having the most support uh, by a double-digit lead. But again, you're talking about the next highest being at like right. 11% and then 9% right. and then 7% sort of stuff. I mean, all of those are just irrelevant. But the point also is that you, you don't have – it's not like Hillary Clinton, what, 62% of Democrats or whatever. Right. Um, and for that matter, assuming she, she gets the nomination – the vast majority of the others are going to go go ahead and vote for her, even if they had previously supported Martin O'Malley or, or Bernie Frank, uh, Bernie Sanders, excuse me. <laughs> Whereas a lot of a lot of uh, uh, um, the supporters of Donald Trump aren't necessarily going to get in line behind the Republicans. They're there. They support him because he's a troublemaker. Yeah, he's the anti-establishment. Seriously. He's the guy who goes after. He's the guy who goes after the military record of John McCain. I mean, come on, he's. I know, I know. I, I should have more faith in Americans. It's just that. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I'm saying your cynicism can actually support you here. Just be properly cynical about right. where that. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I guess if we're on the subject of presidential candidates, we can't ignore, you know, what's happening to Bernie Sanders. And, and a little later, the second half of the show, we will discuss Bernie Sanders. And next week, we'll also discuss, you know, just kind of his campaign and mm-hmm. the various different issues, including uh, I- intersections of progressive people and our, the, the, the issues that we care about, such as race relations. We'll discuss that next week with John as well. 
Um, so I don't want to get too much into it, but I do want to acknowledge, you know, what's what's uh, kind of his presence and the fact that he's been able to pull out some incredible numbers at his events. I think, you know, what it shows is that uh, hundreds of thousands of people or well, I guess over I mean, maybe 100,000 people you know, have come out collectively to his events, whereas Hillary Clinton has seen maybe the highest like 5,500 um, somewhat unbelievable, but an incredible story nonetheless. Yes, and someone recently was writing that he's a very, again, popular candidate with a, a, the, the core of the progressives who have been looking for a standard bearer. You know, Hillary Clinton has moved to the left um, and has actually been doing some rather aggressive and, and deep-rooted stuff. So I don't think she deserves some of the, you know, criticism she's getting as if she's just gliding along to a coronation. Um, that said... Bernie Sanders is appealing to a group of people and saying stuff that they've been like dying for, you know, a Republican or excuse me, for a Democratic candidate to say that they haven't heard in decades, at least from anyone who is getting, you know, good polling numbers. At, at the same time, um, you know, Howard Dean used to get huge crowds of folks. And uh, we all remember the Howard Dean presidency. Got it. You know. Right. And then he just trailed off, uh, you know, as they <laughs> got into the campaign. Um well, you know, speaking of all of this and, and even some comments that uh, Donald Trump has made in which Hillary uh, Clinton has made comments about his comments, and that is the comment of, about women mm-hmm. and his comments directed to Megyn Kelly, uh, Fox News anchor. And, you know, it's got me thinking as a progressive, you know, being a woman and what this means here in this world. And then there's that whole Planned Parenthood thing. And now we've got men who are talking about my body <laughs> and a lot of women here. And then just last week in a board meeting, you know, been marked absent even though I've been there, you know, every single week. And it just makes me start to, you know, all these feelings fester about, uh, you know, being a woman in this world. And so I think it's appropriate today while all this is happening that we answer this question. You know, what about women and a gay gene? (laughs) The gay gene, it it is fact through scientific research that there is such a thing as the gay gene, but what most people might not know is that the gay gene is, you know, the, as we make references to it, it can only be found or exist in gay men. So let's get the program started. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our next guest is Megan Cartwright, who wrote a great article on Slate regarding sexual orientation in women. And do women also have a gay gene or I guess lesbian gene? Uh, let's discuss that on this incredible Tuesday with John Zipper. Megan, welcome to the program. Hi, Michelle. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Hey, Megan. Yes, we're excited. We want to we want to discuss this really bad. It's not fair that the gay the gay gene exists exists only in men. Um, so let's start with that. You know, I think that in your article it states that it was about 22 years ago that the first research linked, uh, you know, men and, and sexual orientation to genes on the X chromosome. Can we talk about that? Sure, sure. So um, you're referring to a study back in the early 90s, actually published by a team of scientists from our National Institutes of Health, which found that in gay men, um, there were certain genes on the X chromosome, so genes that they were inheriting from their mother, which made it more likely that a man would uh, become gay. Where When the researchers looked again in 1995, just two years later, they could not find this same link in women. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's where some of that root is for the idea that there's not a gay gene in women and not 
versus you know gay gene in men. But I just want to be clear. Also, there's no one gay gene in men, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> and even with men, even though we know now um, that genetics plays more of a role in how sexual orientation develops in men, we know that there's still other sort of biological paths they can go through to reach this common destination of being not straight. Right. You know, you know, one thing that interests me, and in your article you know that, you know, by the mid-90s, scientists have figured out that being gay, like being tall or skinny, was partially heritable in men and women. And in 2000, uh, American and Australian researchers found that 92% of men and 92% of women identify as exclusively straight. Um, what, what's interesting is, is exactly what you just said about how, okay, there are multiple things that may go into making that cocktail, if you will. Uh, and yet the percentages and, and those ingredients might be different in, in the two genders, and I'm really mixing metaphors and things here, so forgive me. Um, <laughs> And yet the percentage of 92% and 92% seems a little too even to be, it just seems worthy you'd arrive at that from, from you know, such disparate input. Mm-hmm. You would almost expect that, oh, if it was more, for example, genetic in men, would you expect fewer in men versus if it was other effects like hormones in women, would you think that maybe more in women? Is that the argument you're going for? Yeah, and I actually don't know which I would think would produce more or less. I, I'm just surprised mm-hmm. that, that they would both come out the same. I would just expect some difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and 92% just sounds, wow, that's, that's an interesting uh, coincidence, if it's a coincidence. Mm-hmm. It seems very tidy. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to emphasize here, though, that that was one study. Okay. So there's been obviously a number of studies looking at uh, various populations around the world trying to figure out how many men are gay, how many women are gay. Um, and the estimates usually vary from about 5 to 10%. Mm-hmm. But I, I think what's really interesting is if you look at that uh, Australian study in particular, if you look at the 8% for men and women who do not identify as gay, you start to see some really interesting differences where men in that 8% who are, are not straight are more likely to cluster on being exclusively gay, mm-hmm. whereas in the 8% of women, they're more likely to cluster towards, a little closer to being straight, more bisexual, rather than being exclusively gay. Mm-hmm. There's still some very interesting differences, even if it does turn out the numbers are comparable. Mm-hmm. Even Megan as a lesbian, and, and just to put it out there, a disclaimer to the world, I don't know if you noticed, but I am not a scientist or a researcher. <laughs> Sure. Uh, but, you know, a uh, talk show host at best, not even a journalist. <laughs> I do do my homework and some research, but, you know, um, I like to talk about these things more so than to, to you know, to dig mm-hmm. dirt or anything like that. And so my facts, the research that I have, I can only speak for the uh, experiences I've had personally as a lesbian. And so identifying as a lesbian for me, it's been really tough navigating and dating other women who may not identify with me. And so sexual fluidity is something that I absolutely have experienced um, in terms of an, an actual identity with other women that I have dated. If we could, you know, just chat a little about sexual fluidity fluidity (laughs) because i think that um you know sometimes people mistaken that as you know and the in the that whole argument that sexual orientation can be a choice 
Um, and that's not, you know, through data or research or, or, or even science. It, sexual fluidity doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, correlated to just environmental factors, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, I was also curious about the, the sexual fluidity aspect. And I thought it was very interesting, too, that science bears out what you are observing personally, where studies like, for example, there was an American one in 2003 found that women compared with men are more likely to change how they self-identify their orientation across their lifetime. And I think that the interesting part of that also is that this, this evidence of fluidity, I think it was one of the things which was confounding researchers for a long time who were looking for a biological source or cause of sexual orientation in women. Sort of this roadblock the idea that, okay, maybe are women just choosing their identity rather than are they uh, having various biological factors influencing it? Mm-hmm. I, how, how, when they talk about sexual fluidity, I mean, did they do it by talking to, say, the same person and saying, you know, do you identify now the same way you did 10 years ago, the same way you did 20 years ago? Or did they talk to them 10 years ago, 20 years ago, oh. and today? Yeah, did they do like a, a study where they're asking them at various times versus right. asking them to recall it? Right. So I believe that study I was talking about asked people to recall. Mm-hmm. And that is definitely a, a tricky element there because obviously people's perceptions and memories can change with time and how they understand themselves now might influence how they believe they understand themselves in the past. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the absolute ideal would be to ask people at multiple stages throughout their lives, how do you identify, and then to see how they move across time. Michelle Miao, John Zipperer on the phone with us is Megan Cartwright, who has a uh, an article out on Slate entitled, Why Do We Know So Little About uh, How Sexual Orientation Develops in Women? So we're talking about women today, John. <laughs> I'm joking with him. I'm just... You know, um, but Megan, uh, you know, before we take a little break, I just wanted to, uh, you know, we're going to get into this in the second half of our our interview. But this idea, there's theory. Some people say, you know, that lesbians, um, I think this is not even fact, but tend to have, you know, more testosterone or something more masculine characteristics. Um, You know, scientifically, I mean, through your research, what do you think of that statement? Sure. Um, Well, so I just want to clarify very quickly. I'm a trained toxicologist, which means I study poisons. I do not study sexual orientation research. So I have my my science writer hat on right now, not my (laughs) deep in science uh, hat, (laughs) unfortunately. But from what I've read of other people's researchers, so people who definitely wear the hat of sexual orientation uh, science, is that when it comes to women and I think you're referring to them having more testosterone. Mm-hmm. So that that's an interesting, kind of an interesting puzzle. We we know from studies into women with um, it's a type of hormonal disorder called congenital adrenal hyperplasia. I'm just going to call it a disorder. Um, that these women, when they are fetuses, actually developing in the womb, they produce more male hormones like testosterone than is typical. And uh, men can also have the same disorder, so when they're in the womb, they can also produce much more testosterone than normal. And we know when these children are born, then with after having been sort of bathed in this extra testosterone during development, that the boys, they won't change their sexual orientation. It'll 
makes them a little more likely to go through puberty earlier. Whereas with the girls, when they grow up, they will be more likely to identify as a lesbian compared with girls who do not have the disorder. Mm. There is some basis for that. And yeah, there's also been uh, some interesting studies kicking around since about 2000 uh, that women who don't have this disorder, so, um, but who were exposed to slightly higher levels of male hormones like testosterone in the womb, which you can sort of get a rough idea of how much somebody was exposed to by looking at um, actually their finger length, where the, uh, if you were exposed to more testosterone than women, in general you'll have a slightly shorter uh, index finger compared to your fourth finger. And women with more exposure to more of these hormones are a little more likely to be gay. <laughs> I'm giggling because I think for a she's, lot of us she's lesbians, her fingers right now. no, no, no. That's, <laughs> the funny thing is, for a lot of lesbians, we had heard this and thought, you know, I mean, it was like our guide. And I think throughout college, that's how I would like, you know, I would look at women's fingers to find out if they were gay. <laughs> so this is a great cliffhanger right here. Uh, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Megan and John. Of course, is sticking with us here, so don't go away. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say, I do. Especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And on the phone is Megan Cartwright. And we're talking about her article, Why Do We Know So Little About How Sexual Orientation Develops in Women?, um, Megan, you know, we know for a fact, you know, historically, of course, when we do research regarding uh, sexual orientation, there obviously have been inequalities. I mean, at some point, scientists had thought that gays and lesbians were sexual deviants, which reflected in their work. And now, you know, speeding up to today's time, uh, just to answer that very quickly, why do we know so little about sexual orientation development in women? Sure. So compared with men. 
Um, there's quite a few reasons, actually, and they're all rather tangled together. And But I believe there are about four core reasons why researchers have maybe more or less intentionally uh, been neglecting studying orientation in women. So I think one of the key reasons is if we go back to that, those uh, studies in the early 90s that we were talking about earlier, was that when researchers were starting to look for the gauging, the genetics of homosexuality, they found answers for it, links for it in men, whereas they didn't find answers immediately where they were expecting in women. Second, I think that researchers were also motivated by trying to understand sort of this, what's called the Darwinian paradox especially in men, where the paradox is uh, why are there all these gay men when you would expect that natural selection would get rid of whatever causes a man to be less likely to have kids. And I think that that paradox idea was particularly compelling to researchers when they looked at men because perhaps of this belief that a woman is passive recipient of a man's sexual interest. So really the man's sexual orientation would drive um, sort of evolution and natural selection. And a third reason, I believe, is that sort of related to those fluidity studies we mentioned earlier, where these understanding that women's identification in uh, their sexual orientation can change across their lifetimes. I think there was this perception that women were choosing their identity. So why bother to study the biology of something that is a choice? And fourth and finally, uh, speaking as a scientist in biomedical research, but not sexual orientation research, I also think that we have a really strong tendency as scientists to neglect studies in women and even in female animals and uh, female-derived cells in the lab, where the default for so long in uh, research has been the, the white male and, or the male mouse or the male rat. And in these studies, at least, I don't think it, that this male bias is completely motivated by sexism. Um, for scientists, it can be really expensive and really time-consuming to research both genders. And often you want to be able to compare what you're finding in your studies to what other people have found in previous studies. So if there's that slight tendency in the beginning where those early genetic studies we were talking about found something in men and everybody else is like, well, I wanted to compare my results to those early studies you're going to get this sort of growth over time of folks on men. And I also suspect that researchers are often concerned uh, for this fear of that the menstrual cycle is going to screw up um, the results of their findings. So they prefer to stay away from women or away from female animals out of this belief um, that their data will just be unclear. Wow. John. <laughs> Well, it certainly seems. I think the the, the first point is is a really uh, the, the point about um, the more readily uh, re, uh, found um, what results or whatever in, in men, then kind of the piling on effect of you know well wait that can be replicated that can be replicated you know we can find that and, and draw conclusions from it um, would I mean that in itself would would speak I think to a considerable amount of change or a considerable amount of differential is there. Over those past two decades, has there been an increase in attention toward, uh, you know, sexual orientation research into women, or is it still, you know, the same, you know, small amount compared to the research into men? 
Well, I think for uh, sexual research—pardon me—sexual orientation research in general, it is a—it's a very small field mm-hmm. um, compared with much of biology. But I, what I've seen in general is there is at least this more recent, like in the past few years, tilt towards finally starting to look more into women, and especially with work coming out of, um, in particular, uh, British psychologist Kazi Rahman and Andrea Burry's lab in. Uh, I believe it's in the UK, they're starting to find, now that they know to not look at the X chromosome and to not look exactly where they were looking in men, they're starting to find some genetic links in women. They're starting to find more of, for example, those testosterone studies we discussed earlier. So the effects of hormones in the womb on women. And I think we're finally starting to catch up some now, now that we understand and they're sort of seeing that, okay, even though our earlier studies in women did not give us the results we were immediately expecting, the results that we saw in men, that doesn't mean that there's no biological origins of sexual orientation in women. It just means we have to look in other places and test in somewhat different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, I just want to follow up on that as we wind down here uh, it's interesting because we're we're kind of you know skating by the biological factors of sexual orientation but yet culturally politically socially um lgbt lives you know have been discussed about around the world i mean if we even uh, talk about what happened in uganda when they tried to pass the uh, kill the gays bill i'd like to call it um, though that's the informal name for it, you know, the president of Uganda had recited that or had said um, that there was no biological link to LGBT people or gay or lesbians. And so just find that, you know, even if there's little interest regarding sexual orientation research, I mean, how do we, you know, get scientists and, and researchers around the world to, to really look into this, that the of impact of such research could really be a great one, not just here in the West, but around the world. Right. I, I think we're caught in maybe a little bit of a, a conundrum right now, sort of some of our, our own success in human rights here, which is still definitely ongoing in at least the Western part of the world. Um, where on the one hand, I think a lot of people nowadays, certainly scientists, could have the attitude towards sexual orientation research of, like, hey, being gay, being bi is just a natural variant of being human. Like, we don't need to study the biology of this because it's just perfectly normal and healthy and somebody should not be treated differently um, regardless of how they identify or for whatever reasons lead them to identify that way. But I think at the same time, like you said, understanding the biology behind how orientation develops is so important even for here in the West where we have somewhat more liberal laws uh, because it's such a huge part of our identity that influences so much of our behavior and our sexual health and so much of the gay rights movement, like you're pointing to here with this uh, horrible statement by the Uganda leader, um, that so much of the movement is based on this momentum of born this way. And it's great when there is research that supports that argument that, yes, people are born this way. I guess we should cue music now and insert Lady Gaga, Born This Way. It always helps when you have science backed up by a theme song. (laughs) John. Um, 
Well, I, no, you actually went right into something that I was going to ask, which was kind of like, okay, why do the research? I mean, a long time ago, you you could see people being interested in this question because, you know, people in the West, in the U.S. maybe perhaps, because they saw this as something, okay, what, what, what causes this quote-unquote problem? How do we change it? Um, but really, you just kind of, <laughs> I think, answered that question in, in that if this is a live scientific and, and political issue in many places. I mean, I remember 20 years ago, uh, uh, one of the leading evangelical Christian magazines, they accepted that it was biological, at least in part. Now, that didn't make them change all their policies toward homosexuality, but they did have to take that into consideration, and they used that in, as as a bit of an ameliorating uh, way of getting to, you know, telling their readers, hey, look, these are human beings just like you as well. Um, so this sort of research bo- into both genders, as it develops and can spread further, the, the results of it can be uh, expounded further around the world. I mean, that, that's a very good reason to do this. And I think there's also the, the health factor too, right, Megan? I completely agree both with what John just said and what you just brought up now, Michelle. Um, certainly the the sexual orientation is so important to our identity, which then has so much bearing on our sexual health and behaviors, like choosing our mates, as well as what risks we'll be at. Like, are we at risk for certain STDs or unplanned pregnancy? Right. All right. Well, Megan, I so appreciate you being on the show today and uh, spending Tuesday with us discussing why we know so little about sexual orientation development in women. Um, I thought that th- that was just a, you know, it's groundbreaking for me, but absolutely, a, you know, great conversation to have. So thank you so much for contributing to our program today. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. If you'd like to read Megan's article, you can head to Slate.com. The title of the article is Why Do We Know So Little About How Sexual Orientation Develops in Women? The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Our next guest is Melanie Nathan, who's a human rights attorney and activist and has done an incredible deal of work in Uganda and African nations. So don't go away. John Zipper and I will be right back. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. 
so yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this incredible Tuesday, August 11th. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is with us. That's right. And I have a correction. John has brought to my attention that I was reading the wrong title. Sorry, guys. So if you want to check out Megan's uh, article, you can head to Slate.com. The actual title is Where's the Scientific Research into How Sexual Orientation Develops in Women? So uh, sorry about that. Our next guest is a good friend of ours here on the program and has definitely contributed so much. Um, she's done an, a lot of work on the human rights front and has been an attorney, a human rights attorney, as well as an activist. She's in the executive director of African Human Rights Coalition. So let's welcome Melanie Nathan to the program. Mel, welcome. Hi, Michelle. Nice to hear your voice. Thank you very much. Yes, and we also have John Zipper of Commonwealth Club with us. Uh, I wanted to bring you on the program for, for a few reasons, but you know, one of the major reasons is that we've been following what's happening in Africa regarding LGBTQ rights, and it was just, uh, just last week that they celebrated Uganda Pride? Yes, that's right. Um, it, it, the celebration ended on Sunday evening, and um, it seems like it all went down really well. Those people are to be... Uh, revered for the courage and bravery in holding pride. This was the fourth pride that they have held. And um, it was quite a coup. It's done under a lot of secrecy. The venues are kept secret. It's not pride as we know it here in the U.S. where people get invited from all walks of life. It's very much, um, you know, involves the actual LGBT community itself in Uganda. Uh, you, you mentioned a bit about some of the secrecy it's done under. I mean, what sort of protections do they take? Because I would assume, I mean, especially in Uganda where you've got, uh, you know, large portions of the population and the government basically out to get you, to put it bluntly. I mean, there are going to be people who are trying to infiltrate this, right? Um, you know, there's, they've become very adept at keeping things between themselves. In Uganda... Everybody in the LGBT community knows who each other are. And letting new people in is done with great caution. So it's very difficult to infiltrate. It's not a huge, huge crowd of people like you would see here. So when you have a party or parade, you know, you're looking at about 100 people at the most. Um, there are uh, ways to do it on social media. There's ways to do it by communicating directly with each other. Uh, there are applications that people use on cell phones, and um, very much a, a, a very tight-knit community, everybody knowing each other. So it is very, very difficult to infiltrate, and, and plans are kept uh, close to the vest. So it's not an easy thing. 
Um, what was interesting about this particular prize that I noticed was the willingness on the part of the Pride organizers to allow um, international reporters on the scene and to involve international press. And um, it's got a lot of wide coverage in the last couple of days. And so it's showing even a bolder stand by people. But from a government perspective, it's very difficult for government to actually infiltrate. Let's go back a little bit and uh, remind people who have been following the program or who are at least news, you know, in Uganda, they tried to pass an anti-homosexuality bill authored by David Bahati, in which, <laughs> weirdly, we've also had on the program with Melanie. Um, you know, we know that it did not pass, right, Melanie? What What's the latest update regarding this bill and the efforts of trying to resurrect it or even get something passed regarding LGBTQ lives in Uganda? Right. Well, the bill did pass in December of 2013 and was signed by President Museveni in February of 2014. That caused an enormous amount of persecution. People literally ran for cover. A lot of people exiled out of Uganda at the time. But the courageous LGBT activists in Uganda, um, with the help of very organized and decently funded human rights activist attorneys, uh, went to court and took the Ugandan government to court, stating that A, the bill was unconstitutional, and B, that it was not passed with a quorum in Parliament. The courts in August of 2014 invalidated that bill, saying that it was not passed with a quorum in Parliament, therefore it was invalid. And what happened after that was a lot of parliamentarians got together, signed a petition, and now the bill has been revised to try and come back, and it's in front of a parliamentary committee right now. So we're not sure if that bill is going to come back or not. It has always been used, the issue has always been used in Uganda as a political tool to gain popularity amongst the Ugandan population because the anti-homosexuality milieu is so rife. People really hate gays in Uganda. And so politicians are now able again, yet again, to use this issue as a wedge issue because elections are coming up pretty soon. But I must say, I'm not seeing it being bandied about as much this time as it was before the last passage of the bill. I just wanted to clarify really quickly. There's a difference, you know, because like we, we've we heard in Russia, they have an anti-gay propaganda bill. And so congregating, getting together and doing something like uh, an LGBT pride in Russia is illegal. However, in Uganda, it is it is not right. Or I mean, are there ways that they're finding that they can arrest people when they you know celebrate pride like this? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Because there is no specific anti-propaganda or anti-promotion law in Uganda right now. However, the Minister of Ethics, um, Integrity and Ethics, ironically, his name is Simon Lakodo, he found a way to arrest people in the past um, asserting uh, the issue of uh, pr promotion. And he was taken to court, and that is still before the courts right now, whether he did in fact have the right to close down a specific workshop where he had accused people of promoting homosexuality. He's been sued at this moment, and we're not sure how that's going to play out. But if I were to categorically state, I believe that there is no law in Uganda saying, um, talking about the anti-promotion of homosexuality. And how does one define that? I mean, it's a really wide-open question. The only law 
Uganda right now is the old penal code, which basically criminalizes acts against uh, the order of nature. And that in and of itself has such a wide um, viewpoint, it could mean a million and one things, that because the penal code is so wide, that is one of the reasons they brought the Anti-Homosexuality Act into play, because they want to narrow the definition and be very clear about these issues. They want to make sure the anti-unnatural things they do are okay, but not the things that the gays and lesbians do. Um, so regard, okay. you, you mentioned that the law has been, you know, it got passed, I think it got uh, thrown out by the court, it's being bandied about being brought back. But regardless of the status of that so-called kill the gays bill law, what is life like for gays and lesbians and, and transgendered folks in, in Uganda? Um, you know, you're talking about folks, you know, uh, fleeing the country and going into hiding. So what are they fleeing? What are they going into hiding from? Well, this is something that has bothered me for a long time, is that we're only talking about Uganda. You see, the Ugandan activists have been very, very active in a way that other activists in Cameroon, the Gambia, Nigeria have not been able to be active. And it's almost kind of sucking the air out of Africa in a way. Now, life in Uganda is hard, but actually, I would beg to say that it's even harder in Cameroon, Nigeria, and the Gambia, where there are not open and vocal activists who are well-known at the embassy, the U.S. embassy, the German embassy, the Swedish embassy, and who are not able to travel to America and speak about what's going on in their countries. So I would like to talk more about all the African countries. This is what's happening, in, and it's a, it's a myriad of all of this in each of these countries. People in Cameroon have the highest jailing rate for being gay. They are taken into custody if somebody reports them as being gay and can sometimes be detained for as long as a year before even seeing a lawyer. When a lawyer comes to see them, that lawyer ends up getting targeted and persecuted as well making the whole atmosphere even more difficult. We've had some footage of videos uh, given to us um, from people who are languishing in these prisons in Cameroon, and it's just horrendous. In Uganda, if somebody gets arrested under an accusation of being gay, invariably they pay off the police and they are re released before charges are even made. That happens most often. It has turned into a bribing industry where it becomes prudent for police to arrest someone under the assertion that they're gay because the police officer will make some money. He will then go back and keep harassing that same person for more money, and that person ultimately has to exile. Um, to put it, to, to sum it all up, what we're finding in all of these countries, including Uganda, is eviction, expulsions from school. We're finding um, assaults. We're finding mob justice so-called mob justice, we find in so-called corrective rape against lesbians, um, people being evicted by landlords, being kicked out of their work. I mean, it really runs the gamut. The persecution is, is quite profound. Um, Uganda is the same as these other countries. Uganda is just getting a lot more publicity. Mm -hmm. What's happened with a lot of the Ugandans is many who have had arrests and been persecuted have crossed the border into Kenya and are seeking exile abroad. Um, some are refugees under UNHCR care, some are asylum seekers in international countries. So there's a lot going on right now. Sure. Interestingly, I don't know if you saw the story, but um, two boys were caught at a school in Uganda, supposedly in a sexual act. 
when the um, school officials, this happened just last week, I've written about it on my blog, when the school officials, this is the story, when the school officials try to um, play it down, the entire school rioted and they had to call riot police in and they ended up sending the entire boarding school of boys home, closing the school. The riot was over this supposed homosexual act and the fact that the teachers had tried to cover it up by saying that the mob justice that ensued when the boys were attacked was a result of a theft. So they tried to quieten down that it was a homosexual act. At this point, we're not even sure of the fact. But the funny part is, well, not the funny part, but irony is that riot police were called. Um, what did you think about President Obama's trip to Africa? You mentioned Kenya. He, he went there and he, he you know, spoke out about uh, treatment of, of LGBTQ folks. Um, yeah. How did that play in Africa? You know, I thought President Obama actually did very well. I was concerned that he might overstate things. I thought he was very tactful. Mm. First of all, he didn't speak out about it without first being asked the question. So it was in a press con- conference where... Um, where he asserted what he felt, and he spoke about it in very, very carefully. A lot, there was a lot of anticipation before he came, and a lot of people were saying, don't you dare speak out about gay rights in Africa, President Obama. But when he got there, he, he spoke about it after being asked a question, and he spoke about it by drawing a comparison to racial discrimination in America. And I was very pleased with how he handled it. I thought he handled it perfectly. I was also very pleased that when he was at, spoke at the African Union in Ethiopia, that he focused on the aspect of dictatorship and oppression of democracy in general. I think a big mistake we make in the West is that we speak too much, we isolate gay rights too much, which has a, a backlash effect in Africa. We need to speak about human rights in broader terms, bringing in the human rights towards LGBT people as well. I do think the president handled it um, really beautifully when he was there. How it played out, you know, there will always be those detractors, but there was never that much that he said that anyone could really hold against him in Africa. Melanie, awesome. Thank you so much for that uh, for that statement. I mean, I think that it's great coming from you. We have to take a quick break, but uh, when we come back, I'd love to conclude with a couple other things that you're working on and, and some of your work. So will you stay with us? Absolutely. Thanks, Michelle. The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this. Don't go away. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Ted Olson and David Boys came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Tuesday, August 11th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host with John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. On the phone with us is the executive director of African Human Rights Coalition, Melanie Nathan. Before the break, we had a discussion about Uganda Pride and also African nations and LGBTQ lives. Um, Mel, you know, I just mentioned you're the executive director of African HRC and you're based here in the San Francisco Bay Area. What does that mean to LGBTQ people in Africa? Well, you know, when people reach out, uh, when you have anti-promotion laws going on in your country, uh, there's always the fear that organizations can be closed down literally at a moment's notice. So it's always been my contention that it's good to have offshore allies and coalitions going on offshore. After all, we are a global community. This is the new frontier, and we do need to look after people around the world who are part of our community. But recently, we have embarked upon opening an office in South Africa, and we're, we've made a tentative announcements about that. The office is actually opening very soon, and we have formed a coalition with two other bigger organizations in South Africa. So the good part of that is South Africa is the only country on the African continent that embraces LGBT rights and gender identity. So they have full equality there, although they're still extreme homophobia, transphobia, corrective rape, and also uh, horrible xenophobia. But I've always had this thought in my head that South Africa should be take up a leadership position um, on the African continent. There's a way to go and there's much work to be done. In the United States of America, African Human Rights Coalition is also assisting refugees and asylum seekers to the best of our ability that come here. Funding is a huge problem. We don't have any funding right now. And we've managed to raise bits and pieces as we've gone along, most of which we have put back into the actual direct humanitarian needs. So this is an organization that is fledgling and that has really morphed from my individual activism, but a lot of people are showing interest and a lot of people are coming on board. And I'm really touched by the straight um, ally community and the faith-based community who are asking what they can do to help. 
Mel, thank you so much for that. And uh, I just wanted to point that out um, just in case, uh, you know, people do want to help. And, uh, you know, and again, like I said, it, it, you're right. There are a lot of faith-based organizations and straight allies who are coming out. And, and I think that, you know, there's another thing to be said, uh, especially here in America, while we gain momentum as far as LGBTQ rights, I mean, there's still a lot of us out there in the world who are, uh, you know, uh, who <laughs> obviously need our help. Um I want to turn your attention really quick before we let you go on kind of what's happening at home here in the United States, because I know that you've written a few articles discussing that. Uh, You know, obviously, yes, we've got marriage equality, but there's this bigger conversation that we're having with different intersections of our lives, such as uh, racial issues or racial injustice, income inequality um, that affect not just, you know, the rest of Americans, but also LGBTQ people very much so. You know, kind of what are your thoughts uh, about 2016, as LGBTQ people also um, will go to the poll, uh, go to you know vote for a new president. I think the time is now for LGBT people to embrace the wider picture and to become participants in the wider discussion, um, and to really look at all the issues that impact us and everybody in the United States of America. We're a very important um, voting block. And we need to nurture that as well. I think what's very important to us is the new federal equality bill that is currently being introduced into the U.S. Congress. That is something we have to fight for and continue to fight for and make people aware of. We cannot rest on our laurels. Being equal is not just about marriage. So I think that people are kind of turning away a little bit from the movement, but we need to come even more, become more involved in the movement while embracing the bigger picture as well. We have much more clout than we've ever had, and we need to acknowledge and nurture that. My greatest wish is that when we do fight for this full equality bill, that it's not just used as a fundraising tool by Gay Inc., number one, and number two, that we never settle for religious exemptions that are too onerous for us to handle or that, or that end up being unfair. So we still have somewhat of a battle ahead for ourselves, um, I think racial discrepancies within our own community, um, discrimination within our own community is, um, is not good. We, these are things we need to keep looking at and fighting for. And, you know, we mirror whatever's going, we're the micro of the macro, we mirror whatever's going on in the big community. And even amongst progressives, I feel like there's terrible racial disparity, and we need to be looking at that very seriously. You, you mentioned, you know, the, both trying to do two things. One, acknowledge what, where, what we've gained as well as, you know, keep the eye on the ball of the, this full equality bill. Um, realistically, in Congress right now, this this equality bill is nothing but a fundraiser and attention. I mean, realistically, the GOP is not going to advance this bill, correct? Correct. But let me say one thing. That's a good point you bring up. For far too long, we have failed to set that as a benchmark. I believe that had we set a full equality benchmark 20 years ago, when we did have a full house, mm-hmm. when we did have Democrats in Congress, when we did have Democrats in the Senate, and a Democratic president, we might have been poised to pass that bill. We failed to set that benchmark so long ago because we piecemealed out our own rights, because we marginalized ourselves as a movement, and because we kept creeping into the back door. That was... With no, that was because people like Bernie Frank continued to marginalize us 
as did our own leadership. That's something I've always been very angry about. I don't want to poo-poo what we've got. What we've done has been extraordinary, and our evolution has been extraordinary. But we cannot fail to set a benchmark for fear of not having a full house or, or support in Congress. What it reminds me of is imagine if Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King Jr. said, hey, let's look for legislation that lets us sit on the bench first, and then let's look for legislation that lets us get married first, and then we'll ask for full equality. So that's in essence what the gay community has done. And those are the words of Melanie Nathan, who is the executive director of African HRC or African Human Rights Coalition. Melanie, thank you so much for sharing your time with us and your thoughts here on the program. Thank you so much. And really nice to talk with you too, John. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you'd like to support Melanie's work, head to AfricanHRC.org. Wow, what a show. Yes. Wow. We all, well, we always say that after a show, you know, because I always feel like a ton smarter. <laughs> well, it's so much better than ending a show and saying, oh, my God. That we're, was crap. We're, we're, we're sorry. We're sorry. <laughs> sorry about that crap show. We, we but, <laughs> no, but that's what I love about the show is that, you know, there's always something interesting to learn. Um, uh, you know, I just uh, we mentioned very quickly there at the end about, you know, presidential candidates in the LGBTQ community. Uh, right now in the news, a lot of people are talking about Bernie Sanders and, um, you know, what happened with the Black Lives Matter movement. And although, you know, the, there are a lot of issues that we need to discuss and we need these presidential candidates to really uh, take attention to. You know, a lot of us are upset and angry. I think about um, some of the LGBTQ activists who in the past have disrupted, you know, people's speeches to get some attention. Uh, you know, kind of I just wanted to see what your thoughts were, John, because I know you do political talk or is that uh, too too fresh for, for us to discuss now? Well, no, just figure you're, they're, they're not disrupting Scott Walker. They're not disrupting Marco Rubio. They're not disrupting, you know, any of the other ultra conservatives out there in the in the campaign, they're disrupting Bernie Sanders, and not only did they disrupt someone who has in fact been vocal about uh, racial and economic disparities, um, they they explicitly got up there and accused the, him and the audience of all being a bunch of liberal racists. It's like okay, yes, yeah, so what was it? Was the term white supremacist uh, liberalism? Liberal, liberal white supremacism. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> yeah. So there's you know picking your audience that. Yeah. Although on the other side of things, I'm a follower supporter of Black Lives Black Lives Matter, and uh, you know the, some of the co-founders are right here out of the Bay Area. Um, the the feelings, the emotions, the I think what you know what the black community is going through is valid, and it, this was going to be a point where we were going to have to confront anyway, whether it was today or tomorrow, um, the strategy, although, you know, the strategy of doing that uh, may not be the same strategy that I would be a part of. And so that's just something that we should question, you know, kind of how do you get your message out there without? Yeah, the, we, we mentioned it was made of Barney Frank. Barney Frank has made this case a number of times, which is that, and this is someone who knows how to get legislation through Congress and how, what can't get through Congress. Mm -hmm. But he also makes the point of, why is the Tea Party so successful? Because they vote. Mm -hmm. Why has Occupy not been successful? And, you know, it, uh, largely our political discussion over the past couple of years has been run mm -hmm. by the Tea Party, and they're mm -hmm. not a majority of the country by any means. Occupy has been about protest. And he says, look, you know, progressives, they tend to go out in the, into the streets when they want to make a point. 
the conservatives are voting. And, mm -hmm. you know, things are done by who puts you in Washington. I think you're absolutely right. And I'll end with this because a lot of listeners out there here on the Progressive Voices Network, you know, we know why liberal radio didn't work, you know, on, a, on clear channel stations. They didn't have Michelle Meow. They, well, you, they kicked me out anyway. But <laughs> <laughs> they said they, I was too gay and I am too gay as I fixed my hair. I can tell from your fingers. Right. Yeah. Oh, yes, that's right. And then, then our great conversation we had in the first half of the show. Hey, all of our shows are posted at Commonwealth Club uh, with John Zipper. So if you head to CommonwealthClub.org, search it, Michelle Meow. John Zipper, I'm sure it will pop up. Uh, and everything else, you can head to michellemeow.com. We'll be back tomorrow at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Thank you so much for tuning in.